0: If you need your money and you need to retain the money in the structure and you don't fully understand how a trust works, then is a trust really the correct vehicle for you? And might you be better in something that is simpler and allows you to retain the funds in the structure, for example, a company?
1: You are listening to Australia's Tax News Podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 156 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. In the last episode, Paul Golden of Vectigal in Melbourne covered the first part of his review of easy mistakes to avoid in a trust, especially mistakes around trust deeds, beneficiaries and trustees. In this episode, Paul Golden will cover the second part of his Trust 101 review and focus on family trust groups, distributions and the role of the appointer.
0: So, you know, I talk about trust groups because many, many families have a number of trusts involved. And these are where a lot of the problems arise because there's been this, um, this notion in the public that you can sort of distribute between different trusts that have broadly the same beneficiary groups. And that's not often the case. And you really need to be very, very careful as to where the perpetuities act apply, whether there are any problems, whether you might be able to wait and see rule, whether you have excluded beneficiaries that makes that trust excluded as a beneficiary of the distributing trust, whether they need to be appointed properly prior to it, and there might be slight variations in a beneficiary class that might create major problems in the distributions and the effectiveness of those distributions in the, in, in the family groups. I might just step aside one, one, one second, Heidi, while we're talking about family groups of trust. That's something that practitioners need to keep in mind is not just the income tax consequences or potential consequences. Because often it's great to distribute to another trust, for example, you know, for whatever reason it might be without thinking about the broader relationship with other areas. So for example, in increasingly land taxes or indirect taxes in the various states like New South Wales and Victoria, are meaning that you're going to have to ring fence and make sure that any trust And it goes back to your earlier point as to whether you should be holding a property in a trust. But for various reasons, a number of families have properties in trusts. And you need farms. Farms, or there might be commercial properties of various sorts. um, And you need to ring fence that property from the rest of the family group because you have this risk that now what you might create is by distributing profits of that property to other members of the group, that those members might become land rich or might be seen as having profited from the land and therefore fall within the landholder groups. There are are broader reasons. I mean, so you might automatically fall within the landholder group and that means, for example, if you sell something out of that group or you sell…
1: landholding group is relevant for stamp duty or land tax, isn't
0: it? Most definitely. Then you've got payroll where, for example, you start to link the groups for payroll and the payroll provisions on discretionary trust is incredibly broad. So if you've got an investment discretionary trust, it might be linked with your trading entity, even though that investment discretionary trust does not carry on a business itself. And that's really important for people to understand because often people don't understand that and advisors don't understand that, that when you're then looking at the grouping provisions, you need to take into account the control of the trust and you may well have a payroll problem. So these are, they might not directly relate to a distribution, but by making the distribution, you often land up concreting the potential problem and linking them by way of those distributions.
1: Why would somebody have several trusts, a group of family trusts?
0: There are a number of reasons, and it probably goes back to the question as to why you might have a trust in the first place. And a number of those will say, for perceived asset protection benefits where you've got operating business and certain assets separated and segregated from each other. You might have two or more businesses that all segregated. Separate
1: active and passive assets, etc.
0: Correct. Or they might even be separating two active assets. So you might have two completely different businesses that you don't want to infect with each other. You might have an established business and go off and start a new business and decide that uh, you want a new business under a new name. So, for example, you have, um, I've seen a number of large, um, large family businesses where, for example, each shop, each store is a separate entity and a separate, might be a separate company or a separate trust. And the reason for that is that they're looking to ring fence any potential risk coming out of that store to any of the other stores in the national group. So it becomes really interesting and and for me it's one of them, I dare say I'm a bit of a cynic on this, um, but I think often the asset protection that we talk about is used, but I often wonder how much it really is considered because by making these distributions between trusts and by having unpaid present entitlements and amounts owed between trusts, you're actually undermining this asset protection. So the intent behind asset protection and, and then having these large UPEs. And that's another thing where the tax office is becoming incredibly sophisticated and understands this. So you put up the argument of asset protection and you've got a $2 million UPE to dad. And the tax office will say, well, there is no asset protection because dad's owed $2 million, And trustee in bankruptcy is going to come in and ask the trust to pay out the $2 million. Mm. So I think practitioners need to become increasingly aware of where taxes has been leading um, the way, unfortunately. And I'm a great believer that you need to look at other aspects before you let tax lead, that you need to start looking at the position from a commercial succession planning from a, and from a long-term perspective, rather than saying, well, we've got to do that for this year to get the distribution, to be able to get the lowest tax available. Because it becomes swings and roundabouts and often 5, 10, 15 years down the trap, benefit that you got short term in year one may come back to bite you really badly down the line. Mm -hmm. So you really need to keep that abreast and it becomes a question of communicating that with clients because clients need to understand that yes, they might pay slightly more in year one. But in the long term, they're benefiting because it's keeping the asset protection strategy alive. It's keeping those structures in place. The way I often refer to it is, for example, if you're, um, and and it's very relevant for Division 7A in that if you're putting in place, for example, Division 7A loans or loans from companies and whatnot, it's no different to having a very expensive credit card. And effectively, you're treating yourself as having a credit card and and whether that expense should be spent on the credit card or not. Try, Try to avoid to prevent having to go into Division 7A. And unfortunately, often companies and, 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 and trust structures can't avoid it because they do need the, um, they, yeah. they need the cash flow in the business. But that's probably when you need to start considering other structures. If you need your money and you need to retain the money in the structure and you don't fully understand how a trust works, then is a trust really the correct vehicle for you? Mm. And might you be better in something that is simpler and allows you to retain the funds in the structure? For example, a company where some of the tax advantages of a trust might not be there. Or the flexibility of a trust might not be there. But it gives you other flexibility in that you don't have to distribute out your retained earnings every year for fear of a 99A assessment. And you can actually retain the earnings in the business and allow the business to grow in there. Or there might be other structures that you might look at. But it's I think for for too long, we've looked at trusts. And it's interesting because I think as with you, I'm a foreigner that's come into Australia. So I look at Australian practice. With a global view, as somebody who's come in and often boggle at what's been done forever in a day and wonder if it's best practice purely because it's been done, doesn't mean that it's necessarily the best way of doing things. And I think often what's happened is that we've just been wrote and we've said, well, no. Trusts are the most flexible structure. Let's go with it. And from a personal perspective, I love it because, uh, unfortunately, uh, it can often be expensive, which is good for the advisors down the line. But it's not so fortunate for the people who um, who are operating the taxpayers.
1: When a class of beneficiaries are nominated or when a beneficiary is is appointed, that always needs to specify whether the appointment or the nomination is for income and slash or capital, correct?
0: Uh, yes, yes. So, uh, so going back to beneficiaries and distributions, something that's increasingly becoming important is understanding what you are distributing. By that, I mean the nature of the distribution, not only from a tax perspective, but very much from a trust perspective, And often the trust perspective has an implication on what happens for tax. So under the deeds, often what you do, how you make a distribution for income purposes, the requirements for making income tax distribution are very different to making a capital distribution. So you need to be very aware of what you are distributing. And I'll use the the trust terminology. So for example, if you're distributing corpus out of the trust, you may well need to um, have additional requirements that need to be satisfied to make that an effective distribution. So quite often, for example, it's not distribution minute, but you might actually need the appointor to consent to that distribution. Sometimes that can't happen afterwards, so it becomes very difficult, if not impossible, to actually correct it. It needs to happen beforehand. And I just put a caveat in there, and it's not on this podcast, but people need to be very, very careful about backdating documents. There have been some very interesting cases as to how sophisticated the authorities around the world are becoming in being able to determine whether documents have been backdated, including, for example, you know, the usual ink, uh, dating of ink and paper and things like that. But also increasingly because things are typed, the dates on which certain fonts have been changed. So you might be using a font like New Times Roman or something that's a standard font, but it's actually changed over the years.
1: If you're using a font that came in in the year 2000, but you claim that that document was signed in 1966 or so, then...
0: Correct. Or even, you know, a few years ago, because things are happening with increasing progression, that New Times Roman today might not be the same as New Times Roman three years ago. Hmm. and whilst we're not able to do it in practice they've got sophisticated software that can time these things and they can pick up that document couldn't have been signed three years ago so it really is a case of um beware because brig brother is increasingly becoming very sophisticated yes,
1: or, or don't backdate
0: don't backdate yes correct so you really need to be aware at the time that you're making the distribution when you're making the minute. Hey, is there something else that I need to do? Does this minute, for example, have to be signed by the appointors? If it does, you might need additional time to get that distribution minute signed on time because you might have an appointor that is another advisor, somebody that you've got to track down, might be somebody that's living somewhere else. And these are things that need to be borne in mind. And more importantly, that you actually do comply with the requirements. Um, to make a capital distribution. And then you've got the flow on. So you've now made a capital distribution and you might've made an income distribution, but you now have a small business concession that you were looking to see. Well, it now affects your percentage and whether you're a significant individual. So you need to be very aware of how is that going to affect your tax position down the line and whether you now need to rejig or rethink who gets the different distributions or how that might affect your tax position down the line. A bugbear that has particular effects. So in distributions and distribution minute, and I'm going to sound very much like the lawyer, but it is really important that the terms used in the distribution minute And the resolutions. So I might separate out and people might not understand the difference between a resolution and a minute. The minute is often the document that records the resolutions. So there might be one or more resolutions within a minute. And that's really commercially the difference between the two and the way one might think of it. But in those minutes and in the resolutions, the definitions of, for example, net income or beneficiary or whatever it is, but particularly, say, income and capital, needs to be the definitions used in the trust deed. So, for example, if you're using um, distributing income and the trust deed talks about net income, Well, then what have you distributed? And there's often this real ambiguity and difficulty in reconciling what people have sought to distribute with what has actually been distributed. And that might create problems as to the validity of the actual distributions because you can't actually work out what has been distributed. It also becomes important as, for example, as to what events you might lead to in the tax consequences. So, for example, as to whether you're distributing income or capital. Have you had a unit in the case of unit trust? Have you had a unit redemption or have you had an advance of capital? Are there, you know, and there again, you know, what do you need to create the present entitlement? Be very careful about using words like distribute or similar imprecise or vague language. To create a present entitlement, you might need to pay, apply, or set aside, or some other similar sort of language that's used in the trust deed. And there, I would refer the listeners to Colonial First State, which um, had where the court had um, a number of comments and 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 statements as to what is needed to create a present entitlement. Another thing that one needs to have a look at is whether you can make an interim distribution because it's not always the case. And likewise, an in-species distribution because often trust deeds don't allow you to make an in-species distribution. So you need to be very careful if you are making anything other than an end of year cash distribution. Most importantly, is that um, it's the trustees' duties and whether they have been, in some way, their fiduciary duties have been breached. And to understand that um, these duties are personal and that they can't fit what we call, talk about fettering their discretion. In other words, they can't. um, Fettering, yes. Yeah, they can't agree to be bound by something going forward. So often where that is, is for example, where they've entered into a contract where they'll say they'll do certain things with the beneficiary or with somebody going forward. So they might say, try and enter into a settlement agreement where they'll pay a beneficiary certain amounts in the next 10 years. Well, that becomes a question as to whether they are making a distribution to that beneficiary. Are they paying a separate distribute, settlement sum to that distribute beneficiary? So the one that's really interesting is a very old case. So, I mean, these are questions that have been going back since the beginning of the turn of the century, where a lease with an option to purchase at a future date was found to be a breach of a trustee's duties. And if you happen to hazard a guess at the number of trustees that must have entered into leases with options to purchase at a future date and think how many trustees are actually in breach of their duty you start to realize how many people in public don't fully understand the nature of trusts and what a trust can or can't do. And you start to wonder how suitable they really are for a number of the active businesses that they are um, looking to use them for. You know, so one of the questions that comes up with trustees and trust is, well, we've lost The trust act, can we do something, you know, we've lost the the deed Um, and you might get certain accommodations under the trustee acts in various states. So in Victoria, it's the trustee act 1958, and it might provide, likewise, where your deed is silent, it might provide certain powers that the trustee will be able to act under. So for example, might allow the trustee to act in certain investments or to appoint or remove a trustee. And that's really important because usually they don't allow you to remove or appoint an appointor. And it's often with respect to appointors that one has a lot of these problems. So I might just move on to dealing with appointors because these are real issues. And it's a real issue where you need to start looking at varying the trust where you're making distributions and you need an appointor sign-off And you need to understand the nature of an appointor and there have been a number of cases dealing with the appointor and they're not all easy to reconcile as to what the nature and responsibility of an appointor is but what we can say is that you need to be very careful at reading what the appointor is entitled to do what it's required to do and who is the appointor so for example if it says in the um, deed that person X is the appointor and on that person's death, the legal personal representative is the appointor, then when person X loses capacity and you go to court or you have a power of attorney or you go to court and get a deanship, the guardian or the power of attorney is not the appointor and you're in an untenable position because person X has not got capacity to be the appointor So you're not able to do anything under that trust until the appointor passes away and the legal person or representative stands in the shoes of person X. Do all or most trusts have an appointor? Not all trusts have appointors. More recently, a number of people have started drafting trusts without appointors. A number of older trusts have not only appointors, but they have a number of similar sorts of roles. So you might have an appointor, you might have a guardian, you might have a protector. Sometimes their capacities cross over. And I suppose in talking about an appointor here, the same questions arise with each of those types of roles and offices.
1: Yeah. Why do modern trustees often don't have an appointor?
0: I suppose part of the reason that they don't have appointors is the difficulties that often come up later in time as to who is the appointor, are you able to do things with the appointor, the, the difficulty with passing on and dealing with an appointor as part of a succession plan. And I suppose the, the other side of that is the way certain areas of the law like family law and to a certain extent tax have looked beyond the appointor so that the benefits of having an appointor are really not as great as they used to be.
1: So if you want to change the trustee, how do you do it without an appointor?
0: (laughs) Well, if you don't have an appointor and there's no appointor provision in the trust, then you follow the trustee and usually it would be the trustees. The directors. Yeah, the directors of the trustee company are allowed to make the changes The difficulty comes in is where you've got the appointor-related positions, where you've got to get the, what I refer to just colloquially as the sign-off of the appointor. And there again, often it has to be done at the same time or before the change is made. So I have a very real case where um, I had family who had made a number of changes to a 1970s trust, again, large amounts involved. Number of changes over a number of years. I would like to mention that this happens at the top end of town as well because all of these changes would be made by other large national, now a number of them are international firms without actually looking at the deed, the original deed, and what could or couldn't be done to amend the deed. And it's been a very expensive exercise uh, subsequent to two QC appointment reviews and Opinions on the deed, none of the variations that had been made over significant periods were actually valid. valid because And one of the main problems was that um, the appointor supposedly signing off the changes and variations was not an appointor and could never have been an appointor because um, the deed didn't allow for it. Just aside, Heidi, that was one where it was a guardian that was making the changes and the deed was very explicit as to who could be an appointor. It could only be the executor of the will of that person and subsequently the executor was a different person to the guardian. But even if the executor had been the same person as the guardian, at the time that person was signing off as appointor, they were signing off as appointor, well, supposedly the appointor as guardian of this person who had lost mental yes, capacity. Exactly, and not as executor. They, they were not signing as executor. And there have been cases recently where I think cook is one, if I think, think out loud, or it might have been Berger, where they said very clearly that if it says executor, that's who it has to be. So the fact that it might be the same person who's not yet an executor, well, excuse the phrase, but it doesn't cost the mustard. And in this case, it was an incredibly, incredibly expensive mistake to make. I don't know where that's ultimately going to land up, but it's caused huge ruckus within the family. Unfortunately, I came across this initially in the hope that it might give a good tax outcome. And the question is now there again, whether the tax benefit really outweighed the family issues. Mm. So uh, someone needs to be very aware of these in this sense that, and it's a perfect time for advisors to be, I hate to use the catchphrase, but adding value to clients. You're looking through the deed or you should be looking through the deed with a microscope before making distributions. You really should every year be going through it with a microscope and looking at the trust provisions. And if you're going through the trust provisions, well, having a look to see whether you need an appointor approval, you'll be reading the appointor clauses. And you would then be looking at, well, who's the appointor, And you're looking through the appointor clauses. You can then determine, is the person now alive who might be able to vary that appointment clause? So that you might be able to give yourself more, or the client might be able to give themselves more flexibility in who the appointor is. And that's particularly important where the appointors are getting elderly and still have mental capacity. And that allows you to go back beyond your end and say to your clients, look we've gone through the trust deed to prepare the tax returns to prepare the distribution minutes. We notice that X grandfather is the appointor. If something happens to granddad and he doesn't pass away, but he can't, he doesn't have legal capacity anymore, we've got a real problem. I think we need to deal with this here and we're in the perfect position now to be able to deal with it. We can go and amend it so that it can add another appointor, a co-appointor, or we can um, allow for a broader range of people to be appointed in grandfather's place. And I think these are the opportunities where um, where advisors can look beyond the tax and say, hey, are there certain things that might come out of this review where we might be able to go back to clients and say to them, hey, we've noticed that this is a potentially a problem. Let's address it. Let's address it before it becomes an actual issue. And this is really intended to be um, a trust 101, just highlighting some of the, I wouldn't say simple, but some of the issues that come across my desk every day and that practitioners need to be very aware of coming up to the 30th of June and really pay attention to, and I like to use the term going over the trust deed with a microscope, because it really does require going over a trust deed with a microscope to be able to pinpoint these issues and at least be aware of them and in being aware of them, address them at your end so that you minimize both the client's risk and your own personal risk.
1: Welcome back. I like Paul's comment that maybe at times we overestimate the advantages of a discretionary trust and forget the many pitfalls a trust comes with in the next episode episode 157 craig mcbride of eye care we'll talk about workers insurance or as it used to be known workers compensation in new south wales until then thank you for listening and thank you to class for their support bye for now and see you in the next episode